Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, do local officials see a reason for concern about the new Omicron COVID variant? And what has been the demand for vaccine boosters now that they're widely available? We speak with Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baroudi. Also to your health this morning, as part of the ongoing effort to make the system more patient-friendly, the American Heart Association is lobbying for rigorous enforcement of the new No Surprises Act. Americans rediscovered our national public lands in a big way during the pandemic. Are our national forests, like the national parks, at risk of being loved to death? And the University of Finley's Mazza Museum, getting into the holiday spirit with kids and families in the month of December. We'll find out what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. The numbers are in uh, for uh, predictions on Christmas travel. Uh, The Vacationer, uh, the travel uh, platform, website and travel platform, uh, predicts that some 122 million American adults We'll take a trip to celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, and or Kwanzaa this year. 122 million. What was the AAA prediction? 53 some odd million. So this is double that and then some. You thought that the skies, you know, the the airports and the roads were crowded uh, for Thanksgiving. You ain't seen nothing yet. Now, it's important to note that uh, this survey was administered is what they did is they polled people and they asked and they extrapolated that on on out to uh, get the uh, number predicted number of people who would be traveling 122 million american adults is what they came up with it is worth noting that this survey was administered on october 17th which was well ahead of the identification of the omicron variant of covid-19 so that may or may not change those numbers remains to be seen. The uh, survey re- results show a 13.5% increase in the number of Americans who said they intend to travel to a vacation destination or gathering, vacation destination or family gathering, as compared to last year. Most say they plan to travel by car. That's 60.7%, more than a third. 37% say they plan to travel. Between 1 and 99 miles, so less than 100 miles, and about 40% say they expect to spend up to $500 on gas, flights, hotels, tickets, and so on. So that's kind of the breakdown there, according to the vacationer. AAA won't have its uh, official projection out for quite some time yet, but that's uh, an early indication Again, pending any uh, change due to the uh, Omicron variant, but that is what Americans believe that they're going to be traveling for uh, Christmas this year. That's just an amazing number. You thought that that the roads and the airports were crowded for Thanksgiving. Forget about it. That's going to be cakewalk compared to... Now, that being said, this is also kind of interesting. A, a new survey of, uh, of Americans say three in, five, three in five dread going to family gatherings <laughs> during the holidays. <laughs> so I thought it was really interesting where more of us are going 
More of us went to Thanksgiving with a family. More of us are going to Christmas gatherings with a family. But three in five Americans say they dread attending family gatherings during the holidays. Um, This was a survey of 2,000 Americans over the age of 21, all of whom typically do attend large gatherings during the holiday season. Almost two-thirds in the polls, 63%, agree that there is always one family member (laughs) who takes things too far when it comes to indulgence during the holidays. There's always that one. There's always that one drunk Uncle Ed. (laughs) Uh, 58% say their entire family drinks too much at holiday gatherings. The uh, survey conducted by one poll uh, on behalf of Ritual Zero Proof uh, also revealed that a little more than half of respondents, 54%, know that someone is going to have to apologize the next day. For their behavior at the family gathering. (laughs) Uh, They know someone. I don't know. They know who it will be, but someone will have to apologize. 47% say politics, their least favorite dinner table conversation topic uh, with more intimate ones like family gossip and personal drama following closely behind at 42 and 41% respectively. Americans say mom and dad lead the charge in bringing up uncomfortable subjects (laughs) so if anybody's going to bring up a topic that no one wants to talk about it'll probably be mom or dad 31 percent and 30 (laughs) percent it's kind of interesting but we're still going according to the uh according to the number kind of interesting uh on the if you're looking for a temporary seasonal job you could play santa the uh, there's a record demand for santas this year With COVID on the decline, or at least it has been until we found out about this new Omicron variant, uh, COVID had been on the decline. People are, more people are vaccinated. And so the uh, demand for Santas is back. Mitch Allen with HireSanta.com says they are seeing a huge surge in requests for actors of color playing the jolly old elf, jolly old elf in particular. Actors of color, he says, uh, one of their most in-demand African-American Santas is not available this year because he was recruited by Disney. And that, in and of itself, he says, shows how big the trend of non-Caucasian Santas has become. So, if you're uh, looking for some uh, part-time work, you can be Santa this year. Looking for, that's got to be a tough job. That's really got to be a tough job. I, I really uh, take my hat off uh, a tip of the Santa cap to all of the uh, malls and store Santas and all of that, because that's that can't be easy. That can't be. Easy. And a couple of other uh, items here among the uh, first things that you need to know this morning is I'm perusing the newswire and uh, this one caught my eye. A study published in Psychology Today. I did not read it in Psychology Today. It's not one of my <laughs> not one of my go-to publications that I read all the time. But I saw the report that came from Psychology Today. Uh, the study examined whether tattoos make men more attractive. Uh, in their research, tattoos very very popular these days. But do they make men more attractive to women? In their research, they took photos 
of non-tattooed men and digitally modified them to add a uh, tattoo. And then they showed those photos. They presented the photos to uh, individuals. It was more than 2,000, 2,500 uh, individuals of both uh, men and women with and without tattoos. And they uh, showed the pictures and asked the viewers of the photos to rate them with and without the tattoo in several categories. Women rated tattooed version of the men as healthier, but not more or less attractive. They believe that men with women believe that men with tattoos uh, are healthier, but not more or less attractive than the men without tattoos. So it didn't have any bearing on attractiveness, but the perception of health thought was interesting. On the other hand, men rated tattooed versions of other men as more attractive but not more or less healthy compared with the photos, the men without the tattoos. So it was the exact opposite. Uh, kind of interesting. So if you are, the long and short of it is, in this study, if you are getting a tattoo to appeal, uh, or, or to appeal to someone else or to appear more attractive, you are probably, just note, Guys, if you are getting a, a tattoo to appear more attractive, you are more attractive to men, but not necessarily more attractive to women. Now, that may or may not be your goal. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. And uh, what is more attractive to women? Blue-eyed. Uh, what, what are more attractive to uh, men uh, for women? Man, I messed this up. Uh, what are, what is the more uh, attractive quality to men among women? Blue-eyed women, most attractive to men on dating apps. While men with hazel eyes receive the most matches from se- female singles. This is uh, research uh, conducted in the UK that they uh, carried out by creating profiles for a male and female model on Tinder, on Bumble, and on Hinge, the dating apps. And I guess without even knowing it, people who were on those apps were part of this social experiment. And uh, so what they did is they created these uh, profiles. It's amazing what you can do with uh, digital image manipulation these days. They changed the color of people's eyes, digitally modified And then researchers measured the number of matches that each of those individuals received. All of the other aspects of their profile remained the same. They just changed the color of their eyes. And results showed men with darker colored eyes were most appealing to women. Men were most attracted to women with blue eyes. So for men who want to attract women, dark eyes. For women who want men to be attracted to them... Blue eyes. So anyway, that was anyway that was uh, just what I uh, just what I saw there, and I kind of interesting. Like I said, some of the most uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your uh, Thursday morning started here. I don't know if that uh, any of that changes your life <laughs> necessarily, but it was interesting nonetheless. We just move on. It's it's kind of a, a disjointed start to the uh, program here today. I guess. 
WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly sunny today with a high of 55, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 33. The Hancock County Sheriff's Office says the community has been extremely generous after they put Toys for Tots drop-off boxes in their lobby to help the organization recover from the theft of thousands of dollars in toys. When we spoke with Sheriff Heldman around noon on Wednesday for an update, he said five boxes had already been filled up with toys. The support we're getting is is overwhelming, and I'm just uh, thankful that the community is coming out and doing this. The sheriff said Larry DeVelvis, the Toys for Tots coordinator for Hancock and Southern Wood County, was amazed and thankful for how quickly the community is responding to help out. The drop-off boxes will remain in the sheriff's office lobby through December 12th. With one month remaining in the year, the United Way of Hancock County's campaign efforts are still about $300,000 short of their $2 million goal. The United Way says the majority of their 2021 fundraising efforts rely upon fall workplace campaigns, and unfortunately, most additional campaign activities have not returned due to the impacts of COVID. CEO Angela Dabosky says it takes every single donor and every single gift to keep Hancock County stabilized, safe, and secure. Learn more about how you can help on our website. A second lawsuit challenging Ohio's new congressional map has been filed with the Ohio Supreme Court. The League of Women Voters of Ohio and several voter rights groups and individuals accuse Republican lawmakers of manipulating lines to favor their party over Democrats. The lawsuit argues the map creates 10 safe districts for Republicans, two safe districts for Democrats, and three arguably competitive districts that will favor Republicans. The complaint alleges the map unduly favors Republicans in violation of voter-approved changes to the Ohio Constitution. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The Finley Airport will be getting a very special visit from Santa Claus a few weeks before Christmas. The airport says Santa and his elves will be flying into the airport in Santa's vintage 1947 Stinson 108 airplane. Everyone's invited to come out and take some pictures with Santa and his vintage plane and enjoy some hot chocolate and cookies. The free event will take place in a heated hangar from 5 to 7 on December 13th. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. You remember during the pandemic, Americans rediscovered America's national parks and national forests in a big way, looking for wide open places where people could spread out. Public lands offer something for everyone to be sure, but it's about more than just giving us a place to go to enjoy nature. Greg Peters is author of the new book, Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important public lands and greg you're 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 focusing particularly on the national forests as opposed to the national parks yes chris that's exactly right yep the book uh focuses on america's national forests and uh there are a lot of them there's actually 193 million acres of this particular type of public land spread uh, all across the country all the way from uh, alaska down to Puerto Rico. And the the reason that I, I point out that distinction is because there are really uh, uh, different uh, different missions here. I mean, the, the parks are aimed at preserving areas of natural beauty for our enjoyment and our recreation. And certainly that's part of what the, the forests uh, do. People go to the forests, uh, you know, to, to travel and tourism visit. But uh, conservation is really the, the biggest name of the game here, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a big difference between the parks and the forests, primarily in the way that they're managed. So our national forests are managed for multiple uses, and those include everything from timber harvesting and oil and gas development to the recreation that you mentioned. Um, and there's wilderness areas on national forests where folks can't even you know, ride a, a mountain bike or, or use a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also areas where there's timber harvesting. And, um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely managed for a whole bunch of different uses. Um, and none of those uses are, are at least supposedly supposed to rise above the other uses. They're all supposed to be managed basically equally. That's got to be an incredibly difficult line to walk there, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that's one of the concepts that I wanted to get across in the book is that the the Forest Service, which manages these lands, uh, does have a pretty difficult task. Um, You know, managing lands for for such different uses is challenging, and particularly with climate change and uh, with endangered species and, and all of that kind of stuff that we've got going on right now. Um, it's definitely a, a big challenge for the Forest Service. You know, I, when I first uh, saw the book, I mean, the first thing that, that came to my mind, and again, we talk about the difference between the national parks and the national forests, and I remember uh, Ken Burns' uh, documentary uh, about the national parks as uh, America's greatest idea, and it kind of went through the entire history of how the parks came about, what the idea uh, was behind it, and, and how they've been managed over the years. Uh, kind of take us through, and obviously we can't go through the entirety of uh, uh, of all of this story with respect to the national forests. But talk about how that development of the national forests idea uh, evolved separately from the parks, if that makes sense. Yeah. So back in the mid eighteen hundreds, after the Civil War, um, America sort of came came into ownership um, of huge amounts of land in the West. Um, Obviously, it took that land from Native Americans, but nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the government decided it needed to figure out, you know, what those lands were comprised of, what resources were there. And so it started an effort to do that. And then um, in in the later 1800s, in 1891 specifically, uh, a law was passed that allowed the president to set aside lands as forest reserves. Um, and so that those were the precursors to national forests. And um, the Forest Service was started in 1905 under Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and um, that basically was the, the foundation of the national forest system that we know today. Um, and then forests in the East were added in um, after 1911, when Congress passed the Weeks Act and allowed the federal government to purchase lands east of the Mississippi River, basically, um, and add them to the federal estate. And those lands were pretty heavily degraded at the time. They had been uh, subject to some pretty intense uh, timber harvests, and that degraded the downstream uh, water supplies. So Mm -hmm. when you lose forest cover in high elevation watersheds, you lose uh, pollution control, sediment control, things like that. And so um, the government bought these lands in an effort to improve the watersheds, and that uh, that set us up with the eastern forests. Um, and it also speaks, I think, to one of the main reasons national forests were created, and that is for water provision. Um, these forests yeah. provide 68 million Americans with water in 3,400 different communities. It, it's pretty amazing. Well, and and the reason why I wanted to get into some of that is because the the big question, I guess, is what is the place of the national forests now? I mean, some say that we are protecting too much land. So again, when we talk about the uh, balancing act, the, the that line to walk, what is the place of the, the national forests now? 
That's a great question and a big one. Um, yeah, so I do think there's there's room for, for all of the different public lands that we have in this country. And I think we're really fortunate to have all of them. Um, you know, parks and forests are managed differently. Um, and I think that's ultimately a, a good thing. Um, we need timber in, in this country. We, we need to build houses. We need mm-hmm. oil and gas development for better or worse. And yeah. so we need places um, domestically where we can produce some of these materials. And I think we can do that in a, in a sustainable way if we um, if we work together and, and collaborate up front on the right places to harvest timber, the right places to develop oil and gas. Um, not everywhere is, is the right place, but um, there are places, I think, where some of those uses are appropriate. And uh, certainly being able to develop those resources uh, here in our country um, provides some benefits to sourcing them uh, from other areas of the globe where we don't have the, the environmental quality and control that we have here in the U.S. So um, I think there can be a balance. And I think um, for the most part, the Forest Service does a pretty good job of, of trying to maintain that. They don't get it right all of the time. Um, but there's a lot of public opportunity for, for input in our national forests, which I think is another really important uh, concept that I wanted to try to get across in the book, that um, from planning to project implementation, there's opportunities for the public to voice their, their uh, input and their opinion and, and uh, for the Forest Service to, to hear that and be responsive. That is a uh, certainly a good point, which often goes overlooked. As we mentioned, during the pandemic, Americans kind of rediscovered their national parks and their national forests. They looked for places to go when the typical resort destinations were shut down or attendance was limited and, and so on. And there's long been the question of public lands being, quote-unquote, loved to death. I mean, uh, Americans uh, love their public spaces already, but even more so over the the last year or so. Uh, are the national forests similarly threatened the way the national parks are with being quote unquote loved to death? Um, I think the short answer is yes, um, and and particularly in certain places. Um, so in the book, I, I talk a little bit about. Um, some mountains in Colorado that are particularly uh, heavily visited um, and also in New Hampshire, actually, there, there's some mountains there as well. So mm-hmm. I use that those two forests and, and those two regions as sort of examples of how Americans are, I think, in some places, loving loving our forests to death. On the other hand, I think it's really important that folks have access to outdoor spaces. And as you pointed out, um, you know, particularly as indoor spaces became, you know, more dangerous, literally, um, outdoor spaces became safer. And so I think um, it's incumbent on uh, the, the users and, and new users of these landscapes to learn how to how to be good stewards and how to be good recreationists um, when they're out there on the land. Uh, and that includes, you know, following leave no trace principles, um, following the rules and regulations that do exist on that forest. And the the fact is there are fewer rules and regulations on national forests than there are in national parks, for example. You know, there's no gate that you have to go through. There's no mm-hmm. uh, ticket that you have to buy or ranger that you have to speak with yeah. um, when you go into a national forest like there are in most national parks. So um, it's really incumbent on that user to to know how to appropriately engage in that recreational activity that they want to be doing out there. Our National Forests, uh, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands, builds the complete look at America's national forests, their triumphs, challenges, controversies, and vital programs, a must-read for everyone interested in the history of America's uh, public lands. And again, Greg Peters, the author. Do you have a website in conjunction with the book we can guide folks to? 
Uh, yes, uh, you can find me at gregmpeters.com, G-R-E-G-M-Peters at, uh, dot com. Um, and there's links to the book. I've got some upcoming uh, presentations that I'm doing about it there um, and some of my other writing that I've done uh, over the years as well. Greg, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Have a great day. So yesterday got the news, the first confirmed cases of this new Omicron COVID variant in the United States. All along, health officials were saying it was probably just a matter of time, uh, not if, but when. And now it appears to be here. How concerned are local officials about this uh, new variant? And what has been the demand for vaccine boosters and vaccines for kids now that they are approved and widely available? Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baroudi is with us this morning. Thanks very much for uh, dropping by. Good morning, Chris. Let's start with the let's start with the uh, the boosters because you had a uh, booster clinic yesterday, um, and you said it was uh, pretty well attended. Very well attended, actually. We're very pleased about that, that people are really considering the boosters to mm-hmm. just make sure they're fully um, uh, immune to this virus and its variant. Um, so we, got, we we vaccinated about 300 individuals yesterday um, in a three-hour period. So it was it was really good, well attended. People were, uh, were really um, uh, well, well respected. It is the... I, I don't know if uh, you you could get a sense uh, from from this, but with this news of the new variant, has that um, uh, kind of made it a, an increased impetus for for people to get out and and get those boosters with the uh, word of this new variant, or is I, I think so. Anytime you have a new variant mm-hmm. uh, of concern, as designated by the WHO and uh, and the uh, U.S. government, um, I think people will start worry. Will start. Uh, the most important thing is we don't need to panic. Um, right. You know what? Uh, we're in December 2021. We're not in March 20, uh, where we didn't know much about the virus and how to protect ourselves, how it spreads. Uh, we know more. We don't know much about the Omicron virus yet. Um, that's uh, that's information that would be forthcoming. Uh, but I think we should be prepared. And and that leads to the question, how concerned, again, the, the first cases uh, confirmed in California, so completely on the other side of the country. But as we know uh, from the spread of past variants and the original virus itself, only really a matter of time. Like you said, there's a lot that we don't know about this variant, but we know enough about the virus itself to not be overly concerned. Um, that is correct. I think it's a concern anytime we have a variance, like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and it's a concern for um, for us in public health. Um, I think the good thing that we have a good, robust surveillance system to identify and detect those um, those variants and be able to study them early enough where we can uh, we can offer more guidance about how to protect yourself. The most important thing is um, this variant is um, uh, is a uh, is is a descendant of the original COVID nineteen. It's not a variation of the Delta variant. So it's not a variant of a of variant. the variant. That yeah. is correct. Um, the concern about it is um, an early concerns that's coming out of South Africa is about the spike protein, which is a receptor protein um, that's on the variants. So it's heavily mutated or heavily changed um, in a way that it might be concerned. It will be more transmissible. Um, they don't know exactly how it's going to manifest itself as far as serious illness. Um, but uh, I do strongly believe that the vaccines we have and the immunity they gave us 
um, will uh, will not be all erased and starts from scratch. That's we- the yeah. That's the big concern that I, I think a lot of people have, and they're hearing these uh, these reports. Is this going to be vaccine resistant? And uh, the possibility that uh, the vaccines that we have currently may not protect as well against this variant as the original virus and the Delta and so on. We don't know to what extent this is going to evade the vaccine immunity that we we acquired through vaccination, the three the three doses we we were taken. Uh, but uh, but for sure the vaccine um, would trigger like the, the immune system. Uh, without going into too much details, uh, what we call the the memory of the immune system with the T cells. Those T cells will still remember components of the of the coronavirus and and will react to it. If at least will prevent serious illness and and uh, you know a death. Uh, I think that will still be a good deal. Is is it more indication, though, is the prevailing thought that this is a further indication that this will be something that will require boosters uh, moving forward like we get our annual flu vaccine? As this uh, whole um, uh, COVID um, virus or SARS-CoV-2 virus, but you know, um, mutate and, and become more of an endemic occurrences in our population, um, it might require, um, you know, ongoing vaccines, a yearly vaccine like we do with the flu. Uh, but again, still way too early, I think, and, and uh, we should let science kind of play itself and, and kind of lead us in the right way. That's really uh, the, the toughest part of this. We all want to get these answers right away and we have to let the science catch up to it uh, in the meantime as you said for those who aren't vaccinated the message is still the same to get vaccinated and to get those boosters uh, if you have not been uh, boosted yet yes the key takeaway at this point uh, and until we learn more about this variant in the couple uh, next couple weeks um, is to limit your exposure Vaccination is the best strategy, the first layer, then layer it with a mask, avoid crowds. Um, I know it's the season of giving, but we give the uh, the gift of, uh, of protection from the virus and get vaccinated and boosted. That is definitely the gift that you don't want to give to somebody else is to uh, pass along the, uh, the COVID uh, uh virus or any of its uh, variants and uh, also we mentioned the uh, flu uh, now is the time to get flu shots as well you've got uh, that available as well we we are still uh we still have some flu uh flu vaccines available um by appointment uh we did offer it yesterday as part of the walk-in clinic as well mm-hmm. um so um anytime you need uh, we encourage everybody to get the flu and uh we mentioned the uh, vaccine or the uh, booster clinic yesterday uh you don't have another big uh booster clinic like that uh on the schedule but it is still available uh, yes absolutely you can call and schedule an appointment uh we have all three vaccines available for uh for boosters um, and um, next week, we're planning on a, the second round for uh, for the peds clinics that we started three weeks ago. Um, so we we are we are getting there a little bit, you know. Uh, but the vaccine is available. A lot of the pharmacies in town have it. Some of the providers have it. Um, so I encourage everybody to seek one. Good point. You don't necessarily have to get it from the uh, health department. Uh, it's it's widely uh, available. What about vaccines for kids? And this is uh, the there's been a lot of debate uh, over this, a lot of discussion. Some people uh, have are, are all in on this. Others are, are very hesitant on the uh, vaccines for children. What have you seen in the way of demand for vaccines for young people? Actually, um, demand for the 5 to 11 vaccines been a little more robust or stronger than the uh, teenage, um, you know, from 12 mm. to 18. 
um, and this was really interesting. Uh, we we saw a lot of families coming and and getting their kids vaccinated. They want to go see grandpa and grandma. And they want to see their parents and and they want to get together. So um, the timing was perfect uh, because again they got their first shot three weeks ago. They're gonna get their second shot next week, and by the time uh, in the time for Christmas they will be fully immune. And again, those are uh, widely available as well. That is correct. No supply issues. Yep. No with supply issues to that. at all. Okay. Again, uh, Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baruti with an update on the uh, uh, new variant and the ongoing battle uh, against COVID-19 here locally. Kareem, thanks very much for dropping Thank by. We so appreciate much. it. Well, even though we haven't talked about it in a while, it hasn't been in the headlines as much, healthcare reform is still an ongoing issue in this country, and maybe it always will be. But joining us this morning is the CEO of the American Heart Association, Nancy Brown, to discuss the No Surprises Act, a new law which aims to protect Americans from surprise medical billing. And Nancy, first off, how is surprise medical billing defined in this law? What exactly would it protect Americans from? Sure. Thank you, Chris. You know, surprise medical billing happens when patients unknowingly receive care from a doctor or another healthcare provider who is outside of their insurance company's network. Sometimes surprise bills happen in emergency situations when a patient is unable to choose their medical transport company, their hospital, or their doctor. Patients also often receive surprise bills when they receive treatment from a provider on their healthcare team. For example, an anesthesiologist who assisted with surgery who may be out of network. In both of these cases, patients are held responsible for the cost of the care not covered by their insurance sometimes amounting to hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of dollars, throwing millions of Americans into financial crisis. Now, just to kind of clarify and make sure people understand where we are and how we got here and why this is important, a little over a year ago, the Trump administration finalized rules requiring healthcare providers to make public the rates that they charge for every procedure they perform. Doesn't healthcare price transparency make this a moot point? What is the difference here? Well, first of all, as you note, um, this uh, No Surprises Act is bipartisan. It has support from um, you know, members of the Democratic Party, members of the Republican Party. It uh, began in the Trump administration and will come into effect in the Biden administration. So this bipartisan support on behalf of patients really matters. Price transparency is really important, and it is an important value in uh, reforming the healthcare system in this country. But as I mentioned earlier, many times, if, for example, if someone has a heart attack or a stroke and they're taken, you know, via ambulance to a hospital, um, they can't, you know, look at prices and, and price transparency may not matter in that exact moment. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make sure that the No Surprises Act um, you know, which is a federal law, which will take effect on January 1st, remains robust and that it um, continues its intent to protect patients from the harmful practice of surprise billing. Now, again, uh, just to uh, clarify, because I can hear uh, people saying if if uh, providers would be uh, prohibited from uh, these surprise bills 
sending these surprise bills to patients. Could that not lead to a refusal to provide service? Uh, if hey, if I can't uh, if I can't bill the patient, then I'm not going to provide the service. We believe that um, healthcare providers are you know serve patients and they're in you know their profession because they believe in providing compassionate care to patients. Our focus is squarely on patients. We believe the law should work for its intended purpose to take patients out of the middle of payment disputes and protect them from unexpected medical bills and improve the affordability of care. That's why we're urging Congress and the Biden administration to ensure that patients are protected with tough rules and strong enforcement of the No Surprises Act. Well, that actually kind of leads to and, and touches on the, the question that I wanted to ask next, and, and that is to explain why the American Heart Association is such a strong advocate for this No Surprises Act. You know, the American Heart Association exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to protect the health and well-being of every person in this country. Um, oftentimes, emergencies include People are having a heart attack or a stroke, heart disease, cardiovascular diseases broadly are the number one killer of all Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and sadly, you know, people are impacted by heart disease and by stroke way too often. Often these are emergency situations where patients and or their family members are not in the position to be able to, you know, understand, know, or negotiate healthcare costs. Patients should never have to receive these surprise medical bills that happen all too often. Um, you know, more than half of people in this country have received a surprise medical bill. And the No Surprises Act, which is a federal law, will protect patients in every state, making sure that people can get the care that they deserve. The other reason we care about this is we don't want anyone to delay getting care that they need because of their concern for a surprise medical bill. And just to be clear, do you believe that this law will do anything about the affordability of care, or is it just aimed at reducing the stress of paying for that care? Not that that's not important, but does this do anything in your view to address the cost itself? The purpose of the No Surprises Act is to take patients out of the middle of disputes between healthcare providers and insurance companies. So mm -hmm. we are laser focused on making sure the law remains focused on protecting patients and that there is no weakening or delay of the law's patient protections that will leave patients vulnerable to financially devastating surprise medical bills. So you are encouraging folks to get involved in a grassroots campaign uh, to support the No Surprises Act. How are you encouraging folks to do that? Yes, absolutely. Please join the American Heart Association to protect patients from surprise medical bills by texting SURPRISE to 46839. Again, that's texting SURPRISE to 46839. And by doing this, you will join us in urging Congress and the Biden administration to ensure that patients are protected with tough rules and strong enforcement of the No Surprises Act. Again, Nancy Brown is CEO of the American Heart Association, talking about the No Surprises Act, this new law which aims to protect Americans from surprise medical billing. Have you got more information about this on your website as well? We do. People can visit us at heart.org to learn more. Um, and again, please join us by texting SURPRISE to 46839.
We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. <laughs> this is this is rather embarrassing. A woman attempting to sell a couch on uh, Facebook Marketplace accidentally, uh, <laughs> accidentally, uh, well, her post looked like she was trying to give away her son. Uh, Lucy Battle of Burnley, England, uh, posted <laughs> pictures of her sofa uh, with the headline, Need It Gone Today. Need Gone Today. Uh, unknowingly, or she didn't think about this, when she posted a picture of her sofa, she picked a photo that included her seven-month-old son, Oscar, on the sofa. <laughs> and she said, I somehow managed to upload the wrong photo when I was choosing them from my camera roll. And uh, unfortunately, it was a picture of my son. (laughs) And so there's a picture of her kid and it says, need it gone today. (laughs) She uh, said it was uh, rather embarrassing, but it worked out, though, because one of the messages was someone actually inquiring about the sofa in in the background said, I don't need the kid, but how about the sofa? I could take that off your hands. Uh, Ms. Battle said uh, most of the uh, folks who responded were making jokes about me giving away my son. Uh, I did not expect uh, the post to go viral, but (laughs) all in good fun, I guess. Oh, man, that's embarrassing. (laughs) Give you a a story to tell your kid uh, when they grow up. Remember that time when I tried to give you away on Facebook? Uh, what else is uh, going on in the uh, broken news this morning? Here's a uh, holiday-themed item, also from the international file. Wildlife officials in Alberta, Canada, say a deer has been wandering around town with a strand of Christmas lights wrapped around its antlers. <laughs> this has been going on for several weeks now. Alberta Fish and Wildlife say an investigation revealed the deer was still able to uh, forage and find food and water, so they have, to this point, not taken any action. They said to remove the lights, they would have to physically restrain the animal and or tranquilize it, which would cause unnecessary physical and mental stress on the animal. So, in the meantime, he's just very festive for the holiday. Uh, Officials also warn residents not to attempt to help the deer themselves, as the animal could get defensive and harm itself or would-be rescuers. They're not sure whether somebody placed the lights on the deer's antlers intentionally uh, or or whether the deer just got its uh, antlers tied up in somebody's bushes and off go the lights, but (laughs) one way or the other is a very festive deer wandering around the town of Okotoks, Alberta, Canada. Uh... Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, a Louisiana man was arrested earlier this week for allegedly trying to enter a neighbor's apartment. He tried to explain himself, claiming that a big snake told him to open the victim's door and go inside. A big snake told me to. (laughs) Jesse Terry, age 52, also reportedly told arresting officers that he had uh, smoked crack uh, within the hour before the incident so that might have had more to do with it than the big snake but hey it worked for adam and eve right that's anyway 
Mr. Terry was nabbed by police responding to the residence of a woman who reported that he attempted to open the back door to her apartment during questioning. He reportedly copped to uh, the whole thing, uh, adding that he was told to open the woman's door and enter her home by a big snake. Uh, Police uh, point out that uh, Mr. Terry has a lengthy criminal history. (laughs) Not the first run in with the law. Um... (laughs) A high school student in Stillwater, Oklahoma, arrested this week for allegedly stealing a school bus. Officials say he took uh, took off in a bus parked outside Stillwater High School. Uh, Police found the vehicle a few minutes later and took the teen into custody without incident. Of all the vehicles to steal, a school bus, probably the not the most inconspicuous But, you know, kids. And finally, in the broken news this morning, once again, from the international file, it's always nice when we get international stories because it's somehow comforting to know that uh, we Americans are not the only ones who do dumb things. A Turkish woman, although this I, I would is more bad luck than anything, but there is a lesson here. A Turkish woman suffered scars following a laser rejuvenation treatment performed while her beautician was arguing with her boyfriend on the phone. <laughs> uh, I, I don't mean to laugh, and, and uh, it's terrible for this woman, but the lesson here is <laughs> if, you're, if your beautician is in the middle of an argument with a boyfriend, you might want to just say, you know what, I'll, I'll come back later for my appointment. I'll just... <laughs> You've got enough things on your mind already. Uh, Asli Ilan, age 42, said she felt her face burning when the practitioner exchanged heated words with her beau during her uh, laser facelift back in November of uh, November of last year. This is actually uh, some time ago. This is now working its way through the court system. People sometimes make mistakes, but on this occasion, I paid a very high price, she said. Um, I am facing a bigger problem than saggy skin. Now I've got a lot of trouble with marks on my face and feel awful. This is really, uh, you shouldn't laugh, I guess. Uh, she is seeking damages for negligence. The court has ordered the salon to pay the equivalent of about $260 for the mistake, which is an amount the woman's lawyer said is simply not enough. We think that the penalty for burning a person's face in a way that leaves obvious marks is not a judicial fine. Uh, Ms. Ilan says uh, she does not accept the uh, decision and she is appealing. Um, She's uh, demanded her money back from another salon whose treatment to fix her condition only made it worse. So she's had all kinds of issues here. But again, the bottom line... And the lesson maybe we can all take away from this is that if your if your beautician is on the phone arguing with her boyfriend, probably uh, say, you know what, you can skip my treatment for now. I'll come back later. <laughs> That's the lesson learned there. 
Uh, that is today's broken news update. This report on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Want to stay up to date with the latest news in Finley and Hancock County? What about important community events? Don't be the last person to know about breaking information. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek. Like the WFIN Facebook page, and while you're there, make sure to check out all the videos, pictures, and news. You'll get instant notification whenever we're on the scene of breaking news. Stay on top of all the important information you and your family need to know with the WFIN Facebook page and WFIN.com. If you want a real Christmas tree this year, you better start hunting for it now if you haven't already, because like many things, they're in short supply, real Christmas trees, the 2021 holiday season. But it's not necessarily because of supply chain issues. USDA contributor Gary Crawford explains what it is all about in today's Everyday Agriculture Report. Oh, Christmas tree. Yes, last year, partly because of the pandemic, we saw far more people going out to buy a real Christmas tree, many for the first time and for different reasons. So it just kind of feels like home again. It's the first time we've ever cut our own Christmas tree, yeah. It was fun. It was fun, yeah. You feel more connected to the land, and it makes you realize how long it takes to grow a tree, too. I think the nostalgia of a uh, a real tree is... Uh, is one thing and the smell of it more fun i don't know it doesn't feel like christmas if it's a fake tree yeah more christmas spirit so i've never had a real tree in my whole life and my boyfriend always has so we came to get a real tree together it was so cool and many tree lots and farms sold out of trees last year which hardly ever happened so what about this year i think it will look a lot like last year that's tim o'connor he helps run the national christmas tree association he told us that tree supplies this year will once again be limited and it's not so much so-called supply chain issues it's mainly just supply now remember it takes seven to ten years to grow a tree to a sellable size and starting about 15 years ago demand for real Christmas trees was declining, artificial tree sales going up and Christmas tree growers were stuck with millions of trees they couldn't sell. So tree growers began cutting back on planting trees but they didn't see, nobody saw what was coming. First a changing consumer base that appreciated real trees and COVID, which, as you heard, has brought about a sudden and strong desire for traditional things like real Christmas trees. But because growers cut back on plantings 10 to 12 years ago, the supply of market-ready trees now is limited. And in fact, for the first time in years, every grower who has trees to sell as a wholesale business, that they cut trees, load them on trucks, and send them to somebody else who's going to sell them to consumers, has sold every tree they had available. So his advice to those of us who haven't gone out and gotten our tree yet? Get out there. The later you wait, the smaller the inventory will be that's available. And maybe even the place you choose to shop first would be sold out if you wait too long. And yet we anticipate everyone who wants a tree will find one. Just might take a little more hunting. Also a little more money, not just because the supply is tight, but also for other reasons. The fertilizers have, have significantly increased other input costs. Labor, there's trucking. You know, there, there are costs that are incurred that all have gone up. So absolutely, it is uh, much like every other sector where the cost of producing a Christmas tree is higher. And so, how much more will we probably have to pay for our tree this year? In the neighborhood of a 10% price increase this year. Not too bad. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Uh, so what kind of America are we leaving to the next generation? And when usually you hear that uh, question being asked, what kind of world are we leaving to our kids? Uh, it's usually in context of, inv- of the environment. But uh, in the context of politically, what kind of country are we leaving to the next generation? New poll out yesterday finds that American young adults are worried about the future of the U.S. and its democracy. 55% compared to 44% say that they are more fearful than hopeful about the future of the country. 55% uh, to 44% more fearful than hopeful about the future of America. And that was, interestingly, a reversal from just earlier this year in this survey of those younger than age 30 it was conducted by Harvard Kennedy Schools Institute of Politics uh, earlier this year more said that they were hopeful than fearful and now that is reversed only about one third now say that the US is a healthy or even somewhat functioning democracy and again these are young people uh, under the age of 30 but only Uh, One-third say the U.S. is a healthy or even somewhat functioning democracy. 52% say that America is a democracy in trouble or that it is a failed democracy. Now, some will point out that technically the United States is not a democracy but a representative republic, which is true technically but really kind of splitting hairs. What they're saying is that our system of government is in trouble or failed, uh, at least 52% say that. And young Republicans are more pessimistic. 70% say that we are in trouble or our system has failed entirely, compared with 45% of young Democrats. Now, that may have more to do with the current administration, the current leadership, and how young people feel about that, uh, Democrat versus Republican. But either way, despite those concerns... Just one-third of those young adults describe themselves as politically engaged or politically active. Just one-third. Although, to be fair, that is higher than about one-fourth who were so uh, engaged or politically active when the same survey was done in 2009. So it's up from 24% to about 33%, but still only 33% say that they are politically engaged or politically active, even though uh, they are concerned about the state of the American democracy today. And fewer than, most noteworthy uh, in this survey, fewer than 40% say that they will definitely vote in next year's midterm elections. So... I don't know what that says about the uh, what you can glean from that uh, into the midterms and beyond, but uh, interesting numbers uh, nonetheless, and doesn't necessarily paint a very rosy picture uh, among young people about America's future, does it? Well, the University of Findlay's Manson Museum getting into the holiday spirit with the kids and families. Month of December. 
Uh, joining us this morning from the uh, Mazin Museum is uh, Ben Sapp and uh, also uh, Amy Depew with us uh, this morning from the uh, University of Finley's uh, Marketing Department and uh, we'll explain why here in just a moment because normally, uh, Ben, you would have uh, Fun Day Sunday on the uh, first Sunday of the month is generally when it is. That would be this weekend, but this month you're kind of switching it up, doing something different this year. We are. We instead of uh, doing a virtual uh, format for this month's Fun Day Sunday, we have been uh, working with Amy and her team, and going to partner with them a week later uh, to do something fun for families uh, in the front of Old Main. So uh, this will be next weekend. Uh, Amy, tell us what you got going on. Yeah, it's our second annual Letters to Santa drive-through event. It's free and open to the public. So Santa will be there, the big man in person, and the Mazzy Museum will be joining us as well. Um, there'll be some reindeer there, I understand, from the okay. Mazda Museum. Okay. Um, and they're joining us to help provide more goodies for our kids coming through the line there. Terrific. So we'll have a goodie bag full of surprises for them from the University of Finley and from our Mazda Museum. So explain how this works, because like we said, uh, you did this last year, yes. so folks uh, may be familiar, but for those that didn't participate, uh, or for those who did and maybe need their memories refreshed, how does this work? Correct, yes. So we did this last year, and it was part of our effort to allow kids to see Santa mm-hmm. in, in COVID, the 2020 COVID year, right? right? They couldn't go see Santa in exactly. person. So. It was our way of getting Santa to the children at a safe distance um, through our drive through So they didn't even have to leave their vehicle. Uh, they just drove through our half-circle drive there, mm-hmm. um, waved to Santa, dropped off their letter, and then they got a goodie bag from the University of Finley to take home with them. Awesome. And what was great about that was Santa wrote them back. So uh-huh. those kids also got a letter back from Santa, and I understand he'll be doing that again this year. Okay. So, so uh, and the date is when? For Sunday, this? December 12th okay. from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. Okay. And um, the first five vehicles actually may be getting a surprise from the Maz Museum as well. Oh, so. Okay. So, uh, so, Ben, you were tra- tasked with uh, coming up with the reindeer, <laughs> first of all, and uh, then uh, some goodies for the uh, kids as well. Yes. we've uh, Heather, our education manager, and our team has worked together with Amy to really make uh, the bags and the gifts that these kids get uh, something special to take home and uh, activities that they can do as a family. So that is uh, awesome. Next Sunday, and what are the times again? 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. 4.30 to 6.30. Okay, so we'll circle that on the uh, calendar uh, in lieu of the uh, Fun Day Sunday. You do have another event coming up uh, in December right after that. Yeah, uh, on December 15th, uh, we will have a virtual Tales for Tots for the young, young children. Uh, Snow Friends is the the theme for that. Uh, There's a book uh, by Wilhelm Brand called Snow Friends, and we'll be excited to share that with our audience. And that will begin at uh, 1045 to 1130, and then it'll be uh, posted on our website uh, so you can have access to that anytime after okay. that, that time frame. So just a uh, really fun uh, virtual, another virtual event, but to uh, do with parents, grandparents, and the uh, and the kids uh, for uh, for Christmas. Hopefully, maybe there'll be some snow on the ground uh, yes. when we're uh, talking about that. And uh, the museum is open, by the way, right? Yes, the museum and the gift shop are both open. Um, we encourage you to come out, see the, the artwork, as well as do some Christmas shopping. Um, and then uh, if you're looking for something to do in between the holidays, uh, we'll be open Wednesday in between Christmas and New Year from 12 to 5 and love to have you come out. 
for those who maybe are not familiar, uh, we mentioned the uh, gift shop is open. What kind of things uh, will folks find at the uh, gift shop? Sure, everything uh, children's literature related. We have autographed books, which make uh, wonderful gifts. Yeah. Um, but uh, really gifts for all ages. Uh, and we'd love to just have you come out and we can share some things. If you have interest in specific uh, subjects or topics, uh, in the world of children's literature, we'd be happy to help. And uh, as you said, the museum is open. It is really a, a terrific experience for uh, kids of all ages. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, come out, There's there will be something, I guarantee you, there will be something that you recognize and can remember. And uh, as we have uh, said before, and, and it's worth repeating, the uh, the collection at the Mazza Museum is uh, just huge, so you're always refreshing that and, and changing that up. So if you've been, uh, it's worth a repeat visit. Exactly. We're always changing exhibits. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there's a new exhibit that reflects STEAM, artwork from STEAM-related uh, books, and uh, please come out and take a look at that. Dan Chazinski did a fabulous job in in displaying that show. And you have some uh, hands-on things uh, for the uh, kids and the families as well? Um, we do. Um, it, it, that would take a little bit of scheduling. Um, okay. Uh, but okay. yes, give us a call. So it, for, for like groups and, and things, they can uh, schedule a, a visit. In the uh, group setting that exactly. is available. So. Yes. Okay. Um, and when uh, are the hours for the uh, museum? We're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from noon to 5, and Sundays from 1 to 4, and any of the other days by appointment. Okay. And uh, again, uh, in the uh, during the break, uh, be a good time to uh, take the kids uh, kids down. Indeed. And uh, check that out. Again, the uh, Letters to Santa is uh, next Sunday, yes. right? December 12th, 4th, okay. Okay, and uh, then the uh, Tales for Tots is... December 15th from 1045 to 1130. We've got the link up on our webpage for more information about uh, all of those uh, events and uh, more. The uh, Mazza Museum with the University of Findlay. Again, uh, Ben Sapp and uh, Amy DePute. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program and remind you that you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow to finish up the week, we'll get a weekend basketball preview and, of course, more recipes from Kyra's Kitchen. That and a lot more until tomorrow morning. That is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.